right, good evening everyone. Welcome to week two of our uh, journey through the New City Catechism. Uh, 52 questions, 36 sessions over the course of 2024. Uh, I'd like to begin tonight with uh, a reading from Psalm 86. And so if you'd like, join me there. Psalm chapter 86. And, um, and when you have it, go ahead and stand with me in honor uh, of the reading of God's word. Psalm 86, we'll begin together in verse 8, read through verse 10, and then jump to verse 15. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall Glorify your name. For, verse 10, you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we gather this evening, uh, may you go before us and um, enable our minds uh, to comprehend, um, soften our hearts to hear and receive uh, from you and from your spirit uh, that which you have to teach us. We pray you would mold us and make us. Um, in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. We come this evening to questions two and three of the New City Catechism, uh, which combined essentially represent uh, a study of the Godhead, as you might call it, the Godhead. Um, question two asks, what is God? Uh, which is a natural follow-up to question one. Question one, what is our only hope in life and in death? And the answer says that we are, what? N not not our own, right? That, but that we, boy, you guys are doing really good with this. I'm even like prodding you that we are not our own, right? But that we belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if this is a true answer to this question, what is our only hope in life and in death? Well, that we belong to God. Then, of course, the next natural, logical progression is, well, well, who is this God who is the source of our only hope, right? And so naturally, question two asks, what is God? Uh, to which the New City Catechism answers, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And then it goes on. In the, fur, the full answer, he is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. That's a big, like a mouthful, a uh, word salad, as they call it. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. 
And then question three asks, well, how many persons are there in God? Simply because this was a hotly debated in the early, uh, early centuries of the church, this was a hotly debated question, the nature of Jesus. And so as the, the nature of the person of Jesus was debated, and you had things like the Arian controversy, um, the Gnostic uh, imposition on the church doctrine, um, some of these things we've discussed before in this room, so I, I, we don't take the time tonight to re rehash them. Uh, but as these challenges were made, uh, it became necessary to clearly define uh, the nature of the Godhead. Um, you had at Jesus' baptism the incarnate God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son, and you had from the heavens a voice speaking, and you had the Spirit descending like a dove, right? And so the early church had to um, had to find language that expressed this, this concept of the Godhead. And they labored hard to defend the deity of Christ and the personhood of the Christ. And so what we are left with is this phrase, this concept of persons. There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then just to make the point very clear, uh, they are the same in substance, and they are equal in power and in glory. And so in our exploration of this, uh, a study of the Godhead, the person of God is the first, if you will, talking point. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing we'll consider is just that, the, the person of God. And we'll do so under four subheadings. Uh, we'll talk about his essence, his providence, his eternality, and his perfection. And don't worry, I'll repeat those as we go through them. His essence, the person of God, his essence. This is why I wanted to begin with Psalm 86. You know, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Right? So the first thing to recognize about the essence of God is that he, he is unique among all. There is none like you. You are great and you do wondrous things, verse 10. You alone are God. The Westminster Catechism answers the question, what is God, um, with the first phrase being, God is spirit. In fact, I distinctly remember our children, my girls, when they were a little bit younger than they are now, um, before the New City Catechism was even formulated and published, uh, we were taking our girls through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And um, I believe it's like question uh, six or question eight, uh, what is God? And then at some point, it, randomly, the girls asked a question uh, about God, to which Leslie and I just said, well, what is God? And they said, God is spirit. And he said, okay, well, that answers your question, right? 
See, the, the answer they knew about the essence of God answered the other question that they had about God. You see the progression? God is spirit. And this is what Jesus said in John 4, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, it's a fascinating phrase. Now, because Jesus in Luke 24, when defending his own um, ascension, not ascension, um, resurrection, he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Yet Jesus is God and God is spirit, yet Jesus had flesh and bones. And he says, I'm not a spirit. All right? A spirit is an immaterial substance without flesh, without bones. Unbound would be the right phrase. Unbound to a physical body. Yet, of course, the incarnate son has flesh and bones. And so it isn't that Jesus doesn't have flesh and bones, but that the essence of God is spirit. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Immortal, invisible. What sort of essence could be described with those two words? Spirit. Immortal, invisible. Therefore, as we read the text of Scripture and we come to places where, where God speaks of his hand or his arm or his face, right? A terminology that we use every single Sunday when we dismiss, right? May the face of God shine, right, on you. It's a, a, wish, a, a wish or a blessing. They speak not of a hidden form, hidden somewhere deep in the cosmos, but rather when God speaks of his hand or his arm or his face, he speaks to us in terms that we uh, can grasp, terms we can relate to. We have hands, we have arms, we have faces, we understand what they do. I like the way that Thomas Vincent uh, puts it. He says, uh, God is pleased to condescend that we might more easily conceive of him by such resemblances. Sort of the way that you might try to explain something to a five-year-old. Right? You are pleased to simplify the matter for them because you love them. Um, you are pleased to use language that they could possibly understand and grasp. You would not use sophisticated $18 words right from your higher education. You would use terms and phrases that they understand, concepts that they can grasp, and it pleases you as a father or a mother or a grandfather or a grandmother to do so. Such is the same as God and how he relates and speaks to us. For God to speak of his hand or his arm, it's not a limiting description, but a merciful comparison for us mere humans to grasp the ungraspable, which I confirmed before the sermon is not a real word. 
his essence. His essence is spirit. He speaks to us about his action and he condescends that we might have some manner of relating to him. From his essence, we have to consider his providence, right? Question two, what is God, right? And the, the, the end of the answer says nothing happens except by him and through his will. Nothing happens. And that's, well, that's God's providence, his oversight of the world. Providence speaks to God's creation and sustaining power, overseeing everything and everyone. Colossians chapter 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Uh, some months ago on a Wednesday night like this one, uh, we were studying the book of Colossians, and I spoke at length about um, the scientific discovery of the space between the neutrons and the protons in the nucleus of an atom. And how scientists do not know what it is that holds the nucleus of an atom together, but it is called the strong force. They have no other way to describe it except the strongest force known in existence. And then the theologians quote Colossians chapter 1. In him all things are held together. Jesus holds all things together. And this is why John, uh, Calvin said, if God should withdraw his hand a little, all things would immediately perish and dissolve into nothing. Yeah, the strong force. And scientists scratch their head. We cannot, we have searched the libraries of the world and cannot uncover the mystery of what it is that holds uh, the nucleus of every atom that makes up everything in the known universe together. We just don't know. That's their scientific answer. We don't know. So we just call it the strong force. <laughs> and then they call us dummies for believing the Bible. And we're just saying, guys, it's right there. You know, Jesus holds all these things together. Lovingly, right? For your sake, that you might know him, right? I'm reading a book right now called Divine Providence. It's an old book written by a Puritan named Stephen Charnock. And uh, graciously, um, an author has um, modernized the language just ever so slightly to help us to read it today. And speaking of God's providence, he says this, the Lord governs this world and everything in it. He is the creator God, all powerful, holy, and righteous. He is perfect in his patience and infinite in his knowledge. He alone has the power to bend and direct human hearts. A mere word from his lips can bring creation to its knees before him. 
Nothing takes place without his knowledge, and nothing takes place outside his will. He has ordered all creation, yet this all-powerful God desires a relationship with each of us and seeks to give us every good thing. The providence of God extends to every human life and heart. It's a wonderful, a wonderful idea to consider those two things together. It reminds me of um, one of my favorite scenes from the movie Aladdin. Uh, uh, Robert Williams does the voice for the comical uh, genie in a bottle. And his, his claim is, uh, is this. Phenomenal cosmic power. Itty bitty living space. Itty bitty living space. It's the dichotomy, right? I I find it to be a very worshipful thing to consider these things together. The Lord governs the world and everything in it. He holds the universe together. And yet, when you pray... In your loneliest moments, alone in your bed, that same God hears you. Intimately, uniquely, distinctly. If we're going to think about the personhood of God and his essence and his providence, we can't uh, be in such a hurry that we don't pause and... um, Marvel at this kindness. Well, from his essence and his providence, let's talk about his eternality. For the answer, right, what does it say? Uh, What is God? He is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal. He is eternal. So we have to speak of his eternality if we are going to talk about the person of God. I, I love the song. It says, the, the lyric says, he's the, the holy uncreated one. Holy uncreated one. It's a beautiful hymn, right? It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's great. Dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen, nor can see. And of course, when we skip to the end of the book of Revelation, we find uh, the description, there is no sun in heaven. And yet, everything is as well lit as this sanctuary right now, or better, right? Where's the light coming from? It is emanating from the throne of God. He dwells in unapproachable light. Beautiful. Uh, But of course, he is eternal. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. John chapter 1. 
right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and nothing that was made was, well, we should just read it because I'm, I'm butchering it already. Um, we'll just flip over to John chapter 1 and enjoy uh, the poetry as opposed to my rendition. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It's a wonderful beginning to a gospel account. All right? He is eternal. And then, of course, He is also perfect. He is perfect. He is eternal and infinite and unchangeable in his power. He is unchangeable in his perfection. He is unchangeable in his goodness. He is unchangeable in his glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. His perfection must be on, um, on our minds if we're going to think about the personhood of God. Um, it, it's sort of one of the one of the side points, if you will, of the entire book of Job is God's perfection. And you think about the story of Job, and you think about God allowing Satan to really just ruin this man. He took everything from him. And somehow it was seen as a furtherance of the consequence to leave his wife with him which I don't fully understand, except that in his darkest hour, she told him to curse God and die. So maybe his wife is the kind of gift that you wish would stop, keep on giving. If that's Right? The one companion whom he was left with, and she told him to just curse God and die in his misery. And of course, the moral of the story is is that we cannot impose our ideas of what is just onto God. Our human version of justice will always be inferior to God's superior version of justice, which is based in his eternality and his providence over all the earth. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Right? As, as Job brought his questions eventually to God, saying, this doesn't seem fair. Your actions seem unjust. And so the backdrop of it is, you, you cannot possibly impugn his character. He created everything. He created your life. He created this world. How could we possibly say he has no right to govern it, oversee it, or allow things to happen in it as he sees fit. He made it. He can do what he wants with it. You as the created being cannot possibly say to God, you're doing your job wrongly. He's perfect. His perfection is above question. The mere fact that we as humans can love that we can even be sacrificial towards others, the mere fact that we have a a heart that might burn with generosity when we see someone who is poor or hurting or struggling, 
The fact that we can even manifest these characteristics is simply because we, we dimly reflect the character of God written into us in creation as his image bearers. But Thomas Vincent, again, he says this, creatures, that's us, may have some holiness, some justice, some goodness and truth, but these are qualities in them. They are finite and inferior, subject to change. But these things are the essence of God, that is, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. They are infinite and perfect in him. His holiness is infinite. His justice is infinite. His goodness is infinite. His truth is infinite. And all these are eternally in him without any variableness or possibility of change. He is perfect. Well, in a, a brief study of the person of God, we have to move on from question two, what is God, to question three this evening. We could not possibly um, cover it all, the character or the nature of God tonight. Um, Burkhoff's Systematic Theology devotes 175 pages to the person of God. Uh, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology, devotes 400 pages, each that look like this, to the person of God. I devote 15 minutes of a sermon. <laughs> right, you get the idea? We could not possibly explore it all, say it all, uh, meditate on it all. Um, but perhaps tonight might be a bit of an appetizer for your mind and heart uh, to explore the person of God. Uh, there's a copy of this in the library. Anyone can check it out, take it home, and read it. It's one of my favorites. And you can borrow this one from me if you want sometime, too, for coughs. And if you, don't, if you don't give it back to me, I'll just... I'll not say something that that I would regret later. So I'll come back for it. I will come for it. So we move on then from the personhood or the person of God to the Trinity. The Trinity, a word you will not find in Scripture. So don't search for it. You won't find it. You'll be disappointed. Question three, how many persons are there in God? There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance. They're equal in power and glory. There's a few scriptures that I want to read for us. Um, I, I won't possibly even attempt to, to read all the scriptures that speak of the Trinity. Of course, we already talked about one at Jesus' baptism. You have the Son being baptized, the Father speaking, and the Spirit descending. You have the transfiguration where the Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased to listen to him. Right? You have 2 Corinthians 13, 14, where, which is the, almost one of the most explicit possible scripture references you might make. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. If you, like me, are following the um, Robert Murray McShane reading plan, uh, then you would have read this either yesterday or today. Acts chapter 16. Uh, They went through the region of Phrygia to Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Right? <laughs> and you go, Ooh, you, uh, wait a minute. Right? Like there's this, the Spirit of Jesus. And yet, of course, we come to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the great Shema passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're not talking about three gods, but rather three persons, three um, expressions, not three modes. Watch out if you find that phrase being trumpeted by a purported pastor or theologian. Look out for the word mode. And know that um, you're probably treading in dangerous territory theologically with this one. When you find the phrase three persons, you're likely in sound company. Kevin DeYoung says there are seven statements. And if you get these seven statements, you've captured the doctrine of the Trinity. So here we go. Ready? God is one. There is only one God. All right? No problem. Two, the Father is God. Three, the Son is God. Four, the Holy Spirit is God. Five, the Father is not the Son. Six, the Son is not the Spirit. Seven, the Spirit is not the Father. You're welcome, right? Solved. (laughs) If you get these seven statements, you've captured the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one. There's only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And so, uh, what are we talking about? Well, ultimately, we're talking about the mystery of the Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity. The first error in thinking of the triune Godhead uh, is trying to simplify it down so that we can contain it, grasp it, understand it into something like a metaphor. Um, It is said that St. Patrick evangelized the Irish by using the three-leaf clover to explain the Trinity, the Godhead. One piece of clover, three petals. See? And apparently it worked, I guess. Uh, You may have heard the metaphor of the egg. You have the yolk, you have the white, you have the shell, but it's all one egg. Right? While these... Efforts to simplify through the use of a metaphor or an image are not in and of themselves heretical in nature. They do lead to error. So the best thing is just to avoid them altogether. The fact that we can't fully understand it, nor have anything to compare it with, is the mystery that leads to awe. And that's a good thing. 
the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, yet there is one God. Grudem, God is three persons, each person is fully God, there is one God. The Bible simply teaches all of these things. Again, Grudem, it is spiritually healthy for us to acknowledge openly that God's very being is far greater than we can ever comprehend. Meditate on the unknowability of this unto worship. Now, that's not to say that we're to engage, like disengage our minds when it comes to the persons of God. But rather, when we hit a roadblock in our ability to grasp or comprehend, this should lead us to a sense of, of wonder, you know? So you have scriptures that speak of the persons, you have the mystery of the Trinity, and then in my own personal journey through the study of the Trinity, I come to this notion of the kindness of God. I, I believe it is, it is kind of him to communicate his nature in a way that we can at least attempt to relate or comprehend. Right? All three of these concepts, God created and defined for us. So Jesus says, God is like a father. And all these created beings, in one form or another, relate to the idea of a father. And God invented the notion of the relationship of a father to his children. And he developed and formulated the nature of this human relationship. And he says, now that you have a concept of, of a father and a son and how a father relates to the son, there's a, there's a protection and there's a joy and there's the imparting of an image, right? Now, you can think of God like that. You see, God created the relationship, placed you in creation so that you would have some frame of reference for what a father is, and then Jesus said, you can think of God this way. This is like, like this is a gift to you to help you comprehend him. Right? I, I find that to be a kindness. Every human in existence has a father, whether you grew up with him or not. And those who grew up with or without a father in the home eventually come to realize how this has affected your formation, for better or for worse, with or without. Furthermore, the concept of the father figure is replete in literature, in biology, in history, and especially in the text of Scripture. So when the Scriptures say God is a good father... Everyone can relate to that idea in some form or another. Either because you had a good father and you go, okay, so God is like that. 
or because you had an absent or horrid father, and you can say, oh, God is that same relation only without the evil. Okay, you see? That's a kindness. When we grow old enough, and if we are blessed enough to have children to raise, we can relate to the concept of the son. There's the father and there's the son, and, the, and the, the will of the son is subservient to the will of the father. That's a unique one to consider, the Garden of Gethsemane, right? If there be any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, but yours. And so the, the covenant of redemption, which was established in eternity past, is carried out as the son uh, is subservient to the father. And we think on this then. And then there is the communication of God as spirit, the unseen, invisible, everywhere, and as Jesus promised, in you and with you. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes says that, the, that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men, such that there is a, a craving, a longing, uh, uniquely God says, you shall worship no other gods except me. And the implication there is that the human heart is inclined to worship something. And if we don't worship God, we'll worship something else. Because we're going to worship. Why? Because there is this sense that there is more. There has to be more than what we can see and taste and touch and feel with our human senses. Well, that's because God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. And then God says, God is spirit. There is the unseen helper. In literature, he is your conscience, right? Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your guide. When we get to heaven, and we have glorified minds and bodies... Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that we will then see clearly that which we only now see dimly. I believe that the triune nature of God will be among those things that our created and fallen minds will only comprehend when we are glorified in eternity. In the meantime, God has given to us enough to believe in him, trust in him, and be in awe of him. And I consider that to be a great kindness, worthy of worship, worthy of our gratitude, worthy of complete service to him. Even as my kids ask me, Dad, explain the Trinity. And I go, I don't know. <laughs> Can't do it. I got no metaphor. He's like a father. And yet there is the son, the suffering servant, and yet there is the spirit in you and with you. And they go, I still don't get it, Dad. And I go, yeah, me neither. Let's worship him together. <laughs> right? He's given to us enough. And I consider that to be a kindness. Well, from the person of God to the Trinity, then thirdly, I thought we would take a few minutes and just talk about the big picture. Um, it, because again, in a, in a 45-minute sitting, uh, on such vast subject matter, uh, we can only really talk about the big picture. 
And so one of the things that I considered in, in, in my time of study in preparation for this evening was what they call in mathematics the order of operations. Right? Uh, moms who are homeschooling are like, yep, yep, you know that phrase. Maybe you guys who, like me, remember random things about school and have forgotten most of it, you might remember the order of operations. Is anybody with me? Order of operations? Okay, good. The theory suggests that in order to repeatedly, consistently get the correct answer to a math problem, you have to do the steps in order. If you skip step two, you're almost guaranteed to miss the answer. You can't do one and then three and then two. You have to do step one and step two and step three. And you have to show your work on your paper or else the teacher will not give you credit. Um, the order of operations related to the person of God looks something like this. We cannot know who God is without the Word. So the Word is first. The Word is God's own revelation of Himself. Now, Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks of creation itself being God's revelation of his character, his eternality to mankind, such that we are without excuse. But it's the written word that declares this truth, affirms it emphatically for us. And so still, the building blocks begin with the word. Um, That's why Grudem's systematic theology begins with the text of Scripture. Not with the person of God, but with the word and the confidence we can have in the compilation of the texts such that as they reveal God to us, we go back to the first building block, the word. From the word, we can know God. By knowing God, we can know ourselves. Mankind, created And in Adam, Genesis chapter 3, because of the word, we are sinful. But what is sin? Well, the word tells us. Word, God, man, sin. Right? So you see how it builds. But you can't skip. It's like evangelism. I'm constantly championing you guys. Stop telling people Jesus loves them. Tell them they are doomed. Order of operations. Repent and believe. Repent from what? From your wickedness. Why? You're doomed. Then you get people to a point of desperation. Is there any hope for my condition? Yes, Jesus loves you. Order of operations, that's like step five. Don't invite them to church. A terrible idea. Tell them they're going to hell. Eventually, being in submission to the word is a product of our salvation and as a one who is in submission to the word of God we are compelled to the assembly for formation and sanctification so coming to church is like number six or seven yeah order of operations R.C. Sproul in a famous uh, question and answer session where he shouts into the microphone what's wrong with you people When they ask him a question, he's answered a thousand times before. (laughs) In another part of the Q&A, 
He says this, this is what's wrong with the church today. We don't know who God is. And therefore, we don't know who we are. We can't know ourselves before knowing God. We can't know God without the word. We can, but we won't fully. Sproul goes on. Oops, sorry. Sproul goes on to say, if we had any understanding of our sin, any understanding of who God is, we would be asking why God's consequence for man's sin wasn't infinitely more severe than it was. Right? So the order of operations is like this. Word, God, man, sin, holiness, consequence, mercy, forgiveness, redemption, eternality. You can't jump to redemption. You've got to go back to holiness and sin and man and God and the word which makes clear all of these things to us. And that's sort of the progression of the New City Catechism. So that's the order of operations, big picture. And lastly, uh, why does it matter? You know, why does it matter that we understand the person of God or we would take time to study the doctrine of the Trinity Um, three reasons. Oh, we're out of time. All right, three quick reasons. Unity and diversity. I'm going to borrow from the app, which you have access to, just to reinforce the, the good of it. The Trinity shows us that you can have a profound, real, organic unity with diversity so that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are working in complete union in our salvation. See, if there can be a unity and a distinction among the Godhead, there can certainly be that among those who have him in us, right? Very distinct peoples, yet we are one in Christ. And we have an ultimate eternal example of that unity in the person of God. Secondly, there is the, the idea of the eternality of love. It is said that it was out of the love of the harmony of the triune Godhead that mankind was birthed. And so, the love of God existed in eternity past. Therefore, to know love, you have to know the true and living God. Ergo, you can't know true love without truly knowing God. And if you look at our world today, and the brokenness of human relationships as it relates to everything from parents to children and children to parents and male and female relationships. There is a broken world yearning for true love and looking for all types of ways to find it, supplant it, replace it. Because you can't know true love without knowing God. Because love comes before even the creation itself. It is eternal, the eternality of love. It explains a lot. Uh, the third reason why this might matter, well, uh, there is no greater pursuit than the pursuit of God himself. Right, we go back to the Westminster Catechism question one, what is the chief aim of man to what? with a lot of enthusiasm to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
The first and greatest act of bringing glory to God is simply seeking to know him. Only in knowing him might we then be on the path toward bringing him glory. And only in knowing him might we find joy in him. So to pursue God, to pursue knowing God, is to pursue knowing him as Father, is to pursue knowing Jesus as the Son, is to pursue knowing the Spirit as the Helper. It is no idle or mundane task to think on the Trinity, to explore the doctrine of the person of God, and to know God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things that you have planned for us. Psalm chapter 40. I will show you wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Acts 2. You are the God who works wonders. You display your strength among the peoples. Psalm 77. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Job chapter 5. Well, may we yearn uh, to investigate and set our minds to the study of the person of God unto our truest joy and bringing him ultimate glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word and your kindness to us and revealing yourself to us through it. Thank you for preserving it for us. Thank you for your spirit who convicts us and teaches us, molds us, and shapes us. May you go with us as we leave this place this evening, and may you now hear our continued prayers of intercession as we lift our voices in prayer for our nation, for our community, uh, for our own personal purity and holiness. We love you and we trust you. In Christ's name, amen.